0: Welcome to the Expansive CEO Podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Chapman, founder of Expansive CEO and X Squared Wealth Planning. Buckle in as we explore how to create true prosperity and build a business and a life that expands beyond yourself and makes a dent in the universe. Welcome everyone to this episode of Investment Friday on the Expansive CEO Podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Chapman, and I am here as usual with Mr. Brad Haynes, the Chief Investment Officer of Juncture Wealth Strategies, Hey, Brad, how's it going?
1: Doing well. How are you? how was the How was your holidays?
0: Oh, it was so good. It was very relaxed. and uh, more so than it's been in several years as far as like being able to really, like, unplug, relax. It might have also been because Christmas and New Year's were on a Monday. So it was just like, it was just like everyone was, I mean, I literally, I probably had like three or four client emails over, you know, several days, which is unheard of. Right. And it was, it was just really, really quiet. Um, and things are kind of picking back up now on January 4th, but it was like just a really nice downtime. We stayed home, um, this year we didn't do any traveling and, it's just kids had fun with their gifts. My husband and I got to hang out. I got to knit. I haven't knitted. I If you follow me on social media, I um, posted some pictures of the, like, I finished three hats and a scarf, which is something I haven't done literally in probably three or four years. I haven't finished a knitting project and I used to knit a lot. So
1: nice going. I saw that you had a green knit hat on.
0: Yeah, that and, one was for my son. Yeah. So loves
1: it. Good job. Good job.
0: And a purple one for my youngest. And then my husband wanted, he wanted stripes. He wanted different colors. So we did that. Um, And then my oldest daughter, I'm working on a purple hat for her. So that's how, you know, things are like, like things things are chill, right? Yeah. I had time to to just like relax and enjoy a hobby.
1: That's fantastic. (laughs) And that will help so much as we go into 2024.
0: Yeah, exactly. Cause we're going to talk about today. Um, so appropriate January 4th, 2024. Uh, we've got an election year this year. So we're going to be talking about that. I'm sure ad nauseum. Um, and this particular episode, we're going to talk about risk. And so this is a special episode. We are, we're not, really going to talk about an update um, for what the markets are doing today. We're going to talk about the different types of risks because I don't say this all the time, but Brad, you are, you're a CFA, a Chartered Financial Analyst, but you're also an FRM, a Financial Risk Manager, which is another designation that not a lot of people have. Um, so right. it, was, it was one of the things that I thought was really cool When we first met, um, that you have both of those designations. And, you know, because they take a long time to get. Those are some of the hardest ones to get in the financial industry. Um, So, yeah, tell us a little bit about that. And then let's do it. Let's talk about what actual risk is in a portfolio.
1: Okay. So it's interesting because, you know, getting the chartered financial analyst designation and the financial risk manager designation is has been an interesting path to go down because the CFA Charter really taught me how to generate return. Um, it did a little risk but it, it really gen- said you know here's some assets generate a return and that's really what the focus is on is you know analyzing securities, portfolios um and the like to generate that return for a client. And they do a little, like I said, a little bit of risk management in there, but then the FRM takes that risk management and goes very deep into, into that one particular section. So I like to say that the CFA charter and the FRM designation are two sides of the same coin and and being, in, being having some ex- expertise in both is, I believe, really critical. For advisors or investment manager managers to to use and to know, so that we can help our clients to the best of our ability. Um, so we are going to go into risk, financial risk, investment investment portfolio risk, and we're going to address three three main questions: What is risk? What are the types of risk? And how we can how can we manage those risks when our within our portfolios? Now I'm going to share a screen with you right now, just so that everybody who's viewing us on um, YouTube or or another video platform will be able to see um, essentially what I'm what I'm going through my my slideshow. If you're listening to it via an audio platform, we will as as best as possible try to verbally walk you through this. Um, so so don't don't hang up. Just keep yeah. listening. We'll we'll try to try to do our best here.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you'll hear everything. Um and if you go to YouTube for this particular episode, you'll get to see something extra.
1: Correct. Correct. All right. So let's go to the next one. Oh, whoa. That's what happens when the all right. What is risk? So it's interesting, as I was going through and getting involved into the financial risk manager designation and just analyzing and working with clients who had real money at risk, um, I would ask them this question, What? how do you define risk? And at the end of the day, they came down with definitions that varied widely from what our industry accepted. In our industry, volatility was used as a proxy, but but it became over time more than a proxy. It became the actual definition of risk. And that's not how clients view it. Clients view it as the potential permanent loss of capital. Okay, Mm -hmm. Whether it's probable or improbable, it's still the potential for loss of capital. And generally, that is how clients will view it. And so what I thought was interesting is the industry viewed it one way, clients viewed it a completely different way. Both are kind of right for their specific areas, but I believe the industry needs to get a little bit closer to where clients are defining it to actually manage manage their expectations and to help them out. Um, yeah.
0: The thing I want to interject here is that it is really interesting to think about that from an industry speak standard, right? That when financial advisors, so again, I'm the CFP side of this equation, right? When we're speaking with clients and saying things like, just wait it out, right? The volatility is just going crazy, right? So we use that term volatility. And like you're saying, when we we use volatility as the measure of risk, that doesn't make a client actually feel better, Right. Mm -hmm. So if we say this is a very risky investment because it can go up 20 percent or it can go down 20 percent. Right. So and we don't know necessarily between those two. That would be a high risk. We'll just use that as an example of a high risk investment. um, And at the same time, the client's like, well, if it goes up 20 percent, I'm cool. If it goes down 20 percent, I'm not cool. Right. That's the that's the the piece for them that we need to get a better come together more is what you're saying.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's not only the just the possibility of going down 20% or going up 20%, the clients feel that negative 20% far more deeply than the up 20%. Mm-hmm. And so that the asymmetry between how they emotionally react to both a loss versus a gain is something that in behavioral finance and, and we are we are doing our best to get to get to up to speed with that, but I still think there's a massive disconnect between um how clients view risk and how the, the industry does. I, I give you a few examples. Um, you know, when I was living in in well, when I was living in Phoenix, we have this very long highway called the 101 which basically uh encircles most of the 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 metro area okay and when it was first built not a lot of people were on it today it's jam-packed but when it was first completed not a lot of people were on there and you could go extremely fast which in phoenix for anybody who's driven in phoenix on the the freeways that is how we drive. So one of my, my, my great example always is if I drive from my office to my house, which is clear across the Valley at 115 miles an hour, is that risky? If I get home safe, if I get home safe, is it risky? Well, absolutely. Right. Very, very risky. Okay. Just because I ended home safely does not mean it wasn't risky behavior. It was very, very risky behavior. And that's very much similar to how investments need to be viewed. Sometimes clients can have hindsight bias a little bit and say, well, I've made a ton of money on this concentrated position in my account. And because it's gone up, I feel like it's low risk. Well, it's not. Just because the outcome was really good for you doesn't mean it wasn't a very, very risky decision and a ri- and, and you took on a lot of risk. It paid off. Good for you. Still a lot of risk. And uh, when I when I meet with a lot of clients that have these very highly appreciated stocks that they've owned that have grown to very large percentages of their investment portfolio, It's one of the things we really dive in on and saying, look, we really need to lower the risk because it does have such an overweight influence on the portfolio's overall return. It's just something to watch out for. So what are the different types of financial risks that we have to manage? Uh, They're in four different categories, broad categories. There are subsets to these, but for now, this is good market risk okay credit risk liquidity risk operational risk all right all of these are present in every single investment that you buy or sell so it's something that you need to be aware of you need to somewhat address it and of course this being a risk podcast i'm going to give you examples of things that have gone wrong in each one of these sections as to why you need to be attuned to them so uh, buckle up. Perfect. So, market risk. Market risk is just the change in price. So this is volatility. Okay, but but more than that, it's it's the it's the change in the price uh, at a time where you cannot handle that price going down. So it's important to um, really dive into uh, that volatility can be a problem. Uh, it can be a b- big problem if you are levered, meaning you have debt. And it doesn't have to be debt on your investment portfolio, although it can be, but it could be mortgage debt. It could be debt on your on your cars, student loan debt. That is still a leveraged balance sheet, okay? Mm-hmm. And so as we look at an investor as a client, we need to look at their balance sheet and say, how leveraged is this person? Because if their income isn't isn't all of a sudden goes away or gets harmed in some way, we need to be able to use these assets to support them. So uh, one example I used from this year is uh, the ten-year Treasury yield, which again Treasuries very very safe, backed by the full faith and gov- uh, full faith and credit of the U.S. government, very very safe. However, those very very safe investments also can go up and down a lot in price. Now, some negative examples or some examples that will show you the impact of that is uh, earlier in March of 2023, we had some regional banks go through some real problems. The only reason they had these problems were because they owned a bunch of bonds that were sitting at losses on their balance sheets. And at the same time, they had some depositors want to pull some money out. So not only do you have all these losses on your balance sheet, because the price of your bond went down because interest rates went up, the price went down. And so as a bank, you're sitting on the balance sheet, you have all these losses and you have depositors pulling cash out that you need to fund. Well, what do you do? You now have to start selling some of those bonds taking those losses and giving the cash to the depositors. However, being a regulated industry, um, if you get too de- too stressed in that way, then the regulators step in and find you a new home. Um, and that's what happened with four decent sized regional banks in, in the spring of 2023. And so because the bank is a leveraged investment, environment right they 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 borrow money from depositors and they lend it out um that volatility can be somewhat of a problem even on bonds which are typically much less volatile than stock so right
0: considered the safe option
1: considered the very safe option comparatively right.
0: the other are- piece I wanted to mention with market risk uh, before we move on is that time frame is really really important here as well, right, that uh, you mentioned it kind of right at the beginning of this, that if you have any need for money, then the price fluctuation could be detrimental. So this would be like when we're evaluating risk on a client, you know, client level, like person to person, if someone, if two people have the exact same amount of money, but one person needs that money today or within the next three years and the other person doesn't need their money for the next 10 or 20 years, those that market risk is going to be assessed very differently depending on literally what is what is it that you need right now and in the near future. So that's uh kind of what when you were talking about the subsets of these different risk types, that would be one of the considerations that we'd look at when
1: absolutely absolutely in fact, Um, you can use this volatility or this market risk as a individual investor against the professionals because of timing, because individual investors typically have a longer time horizon. They They can hold for, they're usually not levered as much, particularly if you're young and you're trying to grow your portfolio, you can go in and you can use these opportunities when when the market sells off significantly, you can go in and purchase them knowing you're going to hold on to it for a couple of years and, and let it let it ride. Whereas professionals, because uh, most of them manage money for institutions, and institutions have monthly quotas and cutoffs and quarterly uh performance that they need to to respond to, um, generally individual investors are in a better seat for that environment um it's a little different as you age and again that time to live on your money uh generally you want to have much less market risk in that environment but the second risk we're going to go over is credit risk now a lot of people have in in their mind yes attu- they're kind of attuned with credit risk right um credit risk is essentially anybody any any uh, um pr- any loss that a borrower per, gives a creditor because they're unable to make or unwilling to make those payments, the obligation, obligated payments, whether it's an interest payment, whether it's a principal payment, you can default in those manners. Um, so it's pretty easy to 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 understand, but it can get kind of convoluted as things go through because um, there's different uh legal environments uh different legal structures that that affect bankruptcy or defaults differently um so it's it's one of the things that i think everybody uh needs to be aware of um obviously with you know the same example with the with the banks last spring we had four uh, basically default they went to they were going down the path of of default um, before the regulator stepped in. That is why the regulator stepped in. So it's one of the things that whenever you're investing in something, having having an understanding of how credit worthy they are is a really important uh, consideration, particularly if you're buying fixed income instruments and you're gonna live on the interest payments, it's something to be very, very aware of that you need to know how credit worthy are these companies and or municipalities and or governments that you're loaning money to. Um, so it's 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 uh, pretty simple to understand, but but uh, definitely there are tons of tons of examples of of, of companies that are less than credit worthy uh, defaulting.
0: And so this I think the easiest way to illustrate this for people to understand is like literally just switch the roles. So if I'm a person with a mortgage, my my credit risk to the bank, you know, I'm borrowing from the bank. So my credit risk is, am I going to be able to pay my loan payments back to the bank? And so, you know, we talk about credit scores and all those things, right? Like that's that's how we rate people. If you switch that equation, that's exactly what we're looking at is when you buy a bond or other fixed income, right? Like that's you lending money. Maybe it's to a bank. Maybe it's to a corporation. Maybe it's to a municipality, whatever kind of bond you're buying. But you then are the one lending the money to the bank. And then the bank is paying you interest payments. And so when we look at the credit risk, and that's going to be scored, you know, you're know, you going to see different things like Triple A or double A or triple B or you know different things like that. Those are what you're going to see as credit risk scores or credit scores of a business. That's going to tell you how likely they are are to be able to pay you your payments back to you, just like if the equation was flipped and you're making payments.
1: Exactly. In fact, your FICO score is is exactly analogous to those credit ratings which are put out by Moody's Investment Services, Standard & Poor's, Fitch. There's a couple of others, but um, generally they'll go in, they analyze the corporation or municipality. They say, hey, based on their cash flows, their revenues, their expenses, we either believe they're good or they're not as good (laughs) in terms of being able to make those payments. So it's as an investor, you need to be really aware of, of that because in a bond portfolio, one default, because the returns are so low, one default really does have a massive impact on your total rate of return. And so credit risk is is really something that you need to be very, very educated on and tight on uh, to make sure that you're not taking those, those losses that could have been avoided. So. All right. What's next? The third risk is liquidity risk, which most people take for granted. Okay. And 90% of the time, that's fine. You can take that for granted. But liquidity risk is essentially being able to sell your investment at the price being quoted. All right. Now, that seems like a very non-event type issue. And you're right. Most of the time, if you're trading a you know, a large cap stock or ETF or a very um, liquid bond like a U.S. Treasury. Generally, that's not an issue until it is an issue. And then it becomes a very large issue. A couple of examples. In 2008, 2009, um, when we went through, we were starting to go through the real estate crisis where subprime mortgages all of a sudden became a real problem, Um, you had a lot of senior loans, which were bank loans, uh, instantly get priced at 30% off. 30% off, just right away. So you couldn't sell it without taking a big risk, okay? Now that's different than volatility risk because this is solely based on the difference between what it's worth and the quoted value. Okay. And you couldn't execute. Um, similarly, if, if during the real estate bust in, I'm going to use Arizona as an example, cause I'm, I lived there during that time. So I was very familiar. If you wanted to sell a house during that time, you had to market down the price quite a bit to get it, to actually get a transaction done. Mm-hmm. Um, And so that is liquidity risk. So uh, you need to make sure that you know how important that is. Uh, For example, there are various uh, investment structures that have different liquidity. I used a large cap stock. Um, I mean, cash is obviously, currency is obviously the most liquid. You can use it at any point in time. Uh, Bank accounts are very liquid. US treasuries are very liquid. Stocks and ETFs, fairly liquid most of the time. Um, There are some ETFs and some stocks smaller that are less well traded that do have um, more, their liquidity is constrained a bit. So you wanna be making sure if you're investing in some of these small companies that you you know what type of, of liquidity it has there. Corporate bonds, pretty liquid. Foreign currencies, pretty liquid mutual funds kind of liquid um they only price they only trade at the end of the day so if you want it within intraday then 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 that's okay um but there are some mutual funds that are quarterly redemptions so every three months so if they have complicated strategies on the underlying in the mutual fund then sometimes they they allow monthly or quarterly redemptions out of mutual funds so you want to make sure that you know the structure and what you're buying and how that is impacted by liquidity. Now, what's least liquid? Uh commodities, actual physical gold, physical silver, uh, physical real estate. So your home pretty illiquid for the most part. It may take, you know, six, three to six to nine months to sell your home, depending on the the local market at the time and 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 the mortgages. Art and antiques, similarly, may, may be much, much less liquid because now you have to find someone who likes your particular type of art at the same time they want to buy that particular type of art. So again, liquidity is usually not that big of a deal until it is. So what we do is we analyze a couple of different, we have a couple of different ways of looking at liquidity and, and analyzing how how liquid this, this portfolio is. A portfolio can handle illiquity, illiquid investments um, if it's large enough and it's not uh, dependent, they're not living on those types of uh, funds. So, again, I'm making it sound like illiquidity is bad and it's not necessarily bad. It actually can be very, very good, but you just need to know that that is an illiquid investment and you need to plan accordingly just in case something goes wrong.
0: So the two things that are coming to mind with this one for me, one is that part of liquidity is, especially with you know stocks, ETFs, bonds, even real estate, is if you imagine you putting up a for sale sign on any of those things, that there's a line of people that are ready to buy it. That means it's very liquid. Yep. Right? So like... I'm going to sell this ETF and immediately you put it for sale on you know your brokerage account and it gets bought right away. Literally, that's what's happening. There's a, a trade happening. You're selling it. Someone else is buying that from you. Um, and so it just feels like, oh, why would this ever be an issue? Because I put things up for sale and people immediately take them or I have Apple stock and I sell it and someone immediately takes it. There's another person on or institution on the other side of that transaction. So that means people are lined up to buy that from you where when things become illiquid, it could be that there are stocks that, you know, that's one of the reasons they can even fail, right? You're like, you're like I want to sell this stock. I want to sell this stock. And nobody wants to buy it. Not a single person that has just become illiquid because no one will buy it until the price drops precipitously. And that, so that's one piece of illiquidity, right? Yep,
1: that's exactly right. In fact, I've I've had that example happen um, with a client who had an illiquid stock and had it out for sale for quite some time and only as they dropped the price were people willing to step up and buy it.
0: Yeah, and it's so interesting, right? That when we think about um, different investments that you could have, right? So those a thinly traded stock or a unique company, that kind of thing. Um, that's one, one piece to what you said, like, it's okay for it to be part of your portfolio, as long as it's not like the main part of your portfolio that you're counting on. And the second one that came to mind as you were talking were REITs, real estate investment trusts. Mm-hmm. And so those ones can have lots of different structures, but typically they are sold as, and made, you know, you have to make sure that you know, as the person buying it, that this is not something that you're going to trade on a daily basis or say, oh, I kind of want a thousand bucks out of that. So I'm just going to, that's not how REITs typically work. They're typically very um, tightly held so that the underlying real estate investments can have the chance to do what they're meant to do, whether they're rented out and you know the REIT is receiving income or the buildings are sold and then the REIT receives income so there's a reason why that, that um investment is mostly illiquid until certain points in time. And again, they can have why would you want that? Because they can tend to have really high interest rates, really high returns.
1: Really high income flows. Exactly. Really, really. Yeah.
0: And so if you're like, cool, I'm fine with this being locked up for 20 years, if I'm gonna get, you know, 10% annually straight off of this investment with, you know, and I'm not worried about it that's great. It's okay for that to be illiquid. Um, If you need to pull that money out to buy something else, you know, if your kid's going to college in five years and you were going to use part of that money for college, that's not a good idea. You don't want it there.
1: Yeah, that's, I mean, that's exactly right. There's a whole, there's a whole uh, classification of private investments, private equity, um, uh, private credit, private real estate that actually is paid higher rates of return because they ha- they are private and illiquid. So I'm not saying it's a, those are bad. I'm just saying we have to know what the liquidity uh, characteristics are of, of our entire portfolio and of those specific investments and how they work together. And they can. They can work together very, very nicely. And I've seen it work really, really well. So it's uh, it's something that every investor needs to be somewhat aware of and to manage that that possibility.
0: Awesome. What's next?
1: All right. So I believe the last risk, general risk, is we're going through is operational risk. Now this sounds weird. Operational risk. What is that? That sounds dumb. Um, but it's it's the loss. It's the potential of loss of capital due to anything else due to to people um, processes procedures um you know uh, uh, the model that the investment person is using is out of date uh the procedures have been have been um, altered because ai now has to be addressed um cybersecurity um um and out out and out fraud by an employee Okay, so it incorporates it's a very broad category, but incorporates all of those, the the potential of loss. So obviously investment managers, what we do is when we hire an outside manager, if we if we do, or buy a mutual fund or buy an ETF, we analyze their investment process to make sure that it, it is verifiable and that what they're doing is is what they say they're doing. And so we verify that on a research basis. Um, additionally, though, you have to look at like the structure of the investment. Um, one example here is, um, and I, I, I apologize for those of you that are listening to it verbally, but I'm going to have to go through this. Um, there's a there's a chart on this page that shows um, the defender fund which the defender fund was is very famous because it had very it had really good steady most importantly very very steady returns of 10 to 11% per year like clockwork okay the defender fund had very very wealthy investors um many many people invested in it in a lot of the large town, large cities across the country um and it, the chart I included in here was the Defender Fund's cumulative return relative to the S&P 500. And Hannah, would you describe how well the Inve- the De- Defender Fund did compare to this the S&P on this chart?
0: Well, it's showing that from 1991 to 2008, if you bought the S&P 500, you would have gone from $1,000 up a little bit, down again, up again, way down again in two thousand eight. So you would have gone from one thousand dollars to three thousand over all which that is time. Great, which is great, right? Yeah. But the defender fund went from a thousand dollars, pretty much on a straight trajectory up to over seven thousand in right. that same time frame. So right. literally, like more than a hundred percent better than the yeah. S and P five hundred.
1: Fantastic! Like. And, and it's a straight line. Like it is smooth as silk right there. So this was a one of the very successful funds in his, the history of investment world until it wasn't because this was actually Bernie Madoff's fund who was convicted of the largest Ponzi scheme in the history of the investing world. So again, operational risk the risk of fraud that is something that is it it's all it always raises its head during after every boom and bust cycle you'll have people do things that unfortunately are um just crummy they're just they're shady and they just want to steal people's money because they believe it's easier than actually doing the work for investments um that is something that we as a at, at junctual strategies, we take very, very seriously, and we we walk through um, the investment, the investment, any investment we use, we walk through it pretty closely to make sure that we know, to the best of our ability, that this is a legitimate investment. And so we have criteria, we have uh, we have an, um, procedures and policies in place that help us. Um, look for those things and if if they're if they're there we pass. if they're not there, then it, it becomes a candidate for investment. So again very broad area. it also includes it could it can include um, electrical storms. so like natural disasters is included in here um which we uh, both our chief compliance officer myself, we have uh, taken on the that that role. Um, We have our data housed in a number of different places across the country, just in case something like that happens. So we take all of these risks very, very seriously. Um, Again, so just to recap, the types of risk we went over were market risk, credit risk, liquidity risk, and operational risk. All right. So how do we manage this? How do we manage it? How do we? How do we? Now that we know about all these risks, what can we do? Well, the industry's answer to that is what? Diversification, right? Yep. Um, and most portfolios that I've looked at, from you know prospects to managing portfolios for thirty years, um, most portfolios own. A ton of everything. and that is their, that is the way they implement diversification. If you just own a little bit of everything, you're diversified. That's not technically true. Um, diversification depends on the correlation between investments. whether you have a thousand investments or you have two. If they have, the correlation between those is what's critical and oftentimes people diversify or or buy so many different investments that they they actually get rid of a lot of the diversification benefit and all they do is lower their rate of return and and shrink their standard deviation a little bit but during times of stress market stress they realize they all go down the same amount together and that's where clients get real disappointed in the term diversification
0: right because correlation when we break that down it means that things move in the same direction right yeah, so if if everything's yeah yeah they're positive correlation yeah means they're going to go up together and they're going to go down together and so that's that's a positive correlation it goes from negative 1 to positive 1 um so if you have two different Large cap stocks, those are going to likely have really similar correlation. They're going to go up when the market's booming, they're going to go down. Right. So that might be like putting NVIDIA and Amazon, right. And saying these are different stocks. Yep, they are, but they actually move really similarly based on what's happening in the market. So Mm there, you're not actually getting a high amount of true diversification because when things are good, they're going to be up. When things are bad, they're, they're both going to be down.
1: Right. And negative correlation is when they move in opposite directions. Stock A goes up, stock B goes down. Okay. Um, so that's, that's negative correlation. So diversification, the way it's being implemented right now, generally isn't the best approach. In fact, it's very, very incomplete. Because it doesn't, it only analyzes and only reviews one type of risk. And it's actually a subset of one type of risk, which it only manages volatility. And that is a subset of market risk. It doesn't care about liquidity risk, doesn't care about um credit risk, and it doesn't care about operational risk. So it's it's some of the things that we need to 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 work through. Um, one of the things we do at Junctural well Strategies is we we attempt to uh, manage the risk very differently than that. Okay, we we go through all four categories of risk. We analyze the market risk, the liquidity risk, the credit risk, and the operational risk on the investments for all of our clients, so that they don't have to. And then they can go to bed at night. Having the peace of knowing that we are looking at these types of risks, um, you know, any investment manager and advisor should be able to walk a client through analyzing your risk factors and allocations, um, providing the risk statistics to let you know how risky is your portfolio compared to another another type of portfolio with a similar allocation. They should be able to run scenarios for you. How did my portfolio do during the the bust of 2008, 2009? Or consequently, how did it do during the run-up of 2023? They should be able to tell you those in pretty concrete terms. They also should be able to analyze your portfolio for any concentrated positions and, and give you a plan on how to deal with those to to the best of their ability and to manage the tax impact if it's in a taxable account. Um, Additionally, they should be able to address any operational liquidity and credit risks that are inherent within your portfolio and give you very specifics on how they're doing those types of things. Um, One of the things that I've seen a lot of people do is they take a lot of risk and they're not paid for that type of risk. And so it's one of the things that I see that in a lot of portfolios. And it, it, uh, I mean, it scares me a little bit to, to know that if they hadn't have come to see me, they could have put themselves at, at risk for a very large drawdown and potentially keep them from making their financial goals. So my suggestion is for clients that are really worried about risk, very concerned, they should be looking to hire a professional financial planner and an investment manager to go through these analyses and to figure out how much risk you do have in a holistic sense of your portfolio and how you should manage it on a better basis. If if you're not doing so right now,
0: I am so thankful truly to be part of the juncture family Um, with x squared so this you know expansive ceo is a separate brand the expansive ceo podcast i get to talk to lots of different people and business owners and and talk about a lot of different things Um, but this is also in support of x squared wealth planning which is part of juncture wealth strategies and so i i like to share with people when we start to talk about investment management that there is a reason why I chose Juncture and decided to partner um, with Juncture in particular. And part of it is this, this more holistic view. So I take a very holistic view with my own clients um, from a financial planning perspective, right? We're not just looking at investments. And so that's one of the things that I say. I'm like, yes, the investments are important, but you know, how you're reacting, how you're feeling about the investments, how you're feeling about your financial future is just as important. And so when I'm busy, um, you know, going into those factors with my clients, I feel very comfortable that juncture that you, Brad, as the chief investment officer and the rest of the team are then utilizing a very similar approach with the investments themselves. Because it's you're not just saying, hey, all we're working off of is volatility risk. You know, all we're looking at is beta and standard deviation, and you know that's that's what we're going to call risk and call it a day, um, because that's not a holistic view of what risk is. Just like you you just laid out, and so the fact that you know we're not just looking at investments from you know what's the return and What's the potential, you know, standard deviation of these different different uh, things? But we're really looking at a holistic view of risk within the investments themselves. That's what makes me as a financial planner feel really comfortable um, with our investment process. So, thank you. Uh, yeah, well, thanks for joining
1: us. We we love to have you. So
0: I know, I know. I'm just I'm great, right? <laughs> <laughs> and um you know the clients that get to benefit from you know this this more holistic approach from the financial planning to the investment management it's not it's not um what do I want to say we're not skimping on any aspect here right we're like really diving in to what each person needs from a personal level from a business owner level um and from an investment level, and really, like looking at every layer. so it's it's a much different process. um truly. like i I hadn't heard what you said at first about the the CFA charter, right? That it's really focused on return and just a little bit on risk. Like, that's very surprising to me, actually. i didn't I didn't know that that was the case um before, and that, the financial risk manager designation actually like flushes out more of that, that side that, you know, even a CFA, which is a really, again, it's a difficult designation to get, takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of testing. um It's still missing that risk manager aspect. Well,
1: it's, let me not give you, so that I took it over 20 years ago. There has been more, Oh, that's good. Uh, risk risk being put into the, the curriculum. So I don't want any be any CFA charter holder out, holders out there getting and yelling at me because they have been done doing a better job at both the data analytics and in the statistics for risk. So but when I went through it 20 plus years ago, it was very, very little of risk, but mostly of again return generation. How are you going to generate the return out of these assets?
0: Yeah, and even on the so on the certified financial planner side, CFP, um, I also have an accredited portfolio management advisor designation, um, which goes into quite a bit of, you know, both of those go into risk in different ways as well. Um, but not not to that degree, right? It touches on those things but then doesn't go deep. Right. Um, so I think that's the that's the space where it's like, no, this needs to be actually part of your overall investment portfolio philosophy, review analysis philosophy, in order for it to really make difference.
1: Absolutely. Like I said, uh, to begin the podcast, you know, the risk and return are two sides of the same coin. So we need to be addressing both sides with every client because if everything was always great, then we wouldn't have to. But unfortunately, the world is beset with uncertainty. And that's, that's what we do. We need to be able to manage that uncertainty within, within the confines of our clients, financials, futures.
0: Mm -hmm. Which always depends on your specific (laughs) needs, your desires, how you want to live your life and experience things. um, And what you want to leave as a legacy, right? Like how you want that to be created. So those are all awesome factors to be thinking about. So thank you, Brad, so much for bringing that—the full like slide deck and everything. We we went all out this week um, with that. So I think this is a really special episode, and appreciate this deep dive into risk. Um, and if anyone has any questions about, you know, risk factors, or you know, wants—I don't know—wants to talk to you or me about what they've got going on, right? Like. How do they get a hold of you?
1: They can email me at bhaines, b-h a i-n e s at juncturewealth.com. And please put in the subject note uh podcast question and then I'll be sure to get it. Uh unfortunately I get a, hundreds of emails a day. So if you put that in there, I search by that and I then I get all the questions I, I'm asked.
0: Awesome. <laughs> and if you want to get a hold of me um or anything x squared. Wealth Planning Related, that's hannah.chapman, H A N N A H Dot C-H-A-P-M-A-N, at X numeral two, wealthplanning.com. And if you have any questions for the podcast, again, go ahead and send them over. Um, Or yeah, if you have any questions about financial planning or investment management or risk or anything, we would love to hear about it and address it in an upcoming Investment Friday podcast. Thanks for being here, Brad. We'll see you next time.
1: Thank you. Sounds good.
0: That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening and be sure to like and subscribe. And again, if anything resonated with you from this episode, I would love to hear from you. Email me at hannah, H-A-N-N-A-H, at expansiveceo.com and tell me about it. And if you're ready for your greatest expansion, you can find ways to work with me at expansiveceo.com and at xsquaredwealthplanning.com. That's X, the numeral two, wealthplanning.com. So until next time, remember that there is enough, you are enough, and your birthright in this lifetime is to be expansive.